about half an hour. We're going to sort of take some questions from all of you. I hope you have some questions lined up. I think she's raised some very important and interesting issues that we need to think about and debate about, like she said. So if we could start off then, whoever, if you just stick your hand up and tell us who you are and where you're from and what you'd like to talk about. Who wants to start? I'll start. I think, well, I work in psychiatry. I'm based in uh, London, mental health team. I'm not going to say where. What's your name? Uh, Dion. I think we are on PR, and um, that's what I got from your what you said. Um, and just thinking from a sort of psychiatric point of view, I think it's the keeping on, keeping on that's bringing people to psychiatry so late in crisis. And I think, you know, I've gone to so many things where I'm saying, well, I'm, I'm one of those people who have to assess people under the Mental Health Act and actually are fa- I'm faced with having to detain, make applications for people to be detained under the Mental Health Act because people are keeping on, keeping on and coming too late. And I think maybe there's something to be said about doing this sort of thing in, in school. Um, you know, this for young black women, even men, in school. Um, and just to sort of extend that to their parents about back off. I'm, I'm, I can, I'm, I'm strong too. You know, just extending that shared power. I'm a middle child, and I can relate to everything. <laughs> and I thought, why this is really creepy because that's six people. That, that, <laughs> that's my experience. Everybody looks to you, and where do you get a moment? And having to appeal to yourself, having that conversation with yourself, to have that moment, because in my line of work, there is a thin line. There is that thin line. We could be there, not keeping on, keeping on, but saying, hang on a minute, or fall into, you know, falling apart and ending up in a situation that other people are going to control on your behalf mm-hmm. and possibly scaring children, you know. And I think um, a lot of the work now is to empower children and give, you know, give them the, the benefit of that, you, you, you know, you, you can be strong and. In, in a situation and support mummy for mummy to keep on keeping on in a P-H-A-T way rather than an F-A-T way <laughs> using that analogy which is a really good analogy yeah. I, think, so. I, think that's, I think that's really important I think the, the thin line you talk about is it's the world we, the, the real world on planet earth that we live with now and I think that we still have a view that with health, whether it's emotional, whether it's physical, that actually you're here and then something happens and you go to here. And what people, it's very difficult to, to measure and keep a line is how close to the line you actually are. And some people have no idea that how close to the line they are till they fall over the other side. But we do, we do. And I think even before we get to the crisis point, there are things that we choose to do in the everyday that either help us towards that line or keep us away from the edge. One of the things that I notice very, very um, regularly in, in my job, in, in, my, in my day job, um, you know, I work at the university and I'm in charge of the research centre. I lead, there are 20-odd there are people who work in the research centre. One of the things that I insist on in the research centre, including for myself, and it was harder for myself than it was for other people, is people are supposed to take their holiday. 
if, and this is just an everyday example, you know, of people who proudly proclaim, I never take my holidays. That to me is an everyday thing that actually doesn't help us to keep away from the edge. You know, you are paid for your holiday. You're supposed to have your holiday. Whether you have it or not, nothing, you know, they're not going to give you any more. That You know, there are no badges given out for how many people had the least holiday. You know, you just lose that time to actually stop the bus and get off. That's what you do. You lose that time. I have the same argument. So I make sure everyone takes the holiday, whether they like it or not. And that may be, again, it's a thin line in a management sense from making, forcing people to have a break. But it's like, you have to have a holiday, you know. I, you know, on a Friday, I go round and see who's still there at whatever time. And I turn the light off. It's go home. You have to go home now. You know, because for me, managing that centre is, when that person's sick on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday of the next week because they're too tired, because they had an accident, because they were so tired driving home that they couldn't see, because they had a cold, which because they've not taken one day off, they're now off for three weeks. The impact is a lot greater than if they just had the holiday in the first place. And I think, again, in our positions, and for those of you who manage other people, whether it's officially or unofficially, I think there's a responsibility to make sure people take the holiday. There is a responsibility to make sure that people are not attached to their computers 24-7. Because the world we live in now is accessible, but that means very much like we were talking earlier, that that means that you, work is always there. You know, we're not working in factories where we make 100 boxes, and when we've made our 100 boxes, we go home. And we can't make boxes at home, so we have to go home. You know, we are in places where our work follows us, you know. And my kind of phrase I always say to, to um, people I work with is, if the number nine bus gets me tomorrow, as much as I love it and as much as I'm valued in my work, this place will still be open. It will still carry on, you know. There may be a, a, a tear, hopefully, shed that I'm no longer with us, but... It will still be here. It will still be here. But what you are, what, what you do, and I think what we often do as women, and particularly black women, because that's my experience, is that we steal time from ourselves. We steal the one thing that we cannot replace. We steal time. And we give that time to an organisation. Or we give that time, half the time, to people we can't even, don't even like. <laughs> but we steal time from ourselves and every time we steal that time we steal health time it's called cool. you know there's this whole notion of presenteeism I don't know if people have heard of that presenteeism which is going to work when you're not sick when you're sick you're literally there and you're just there and it's not efficient you're not you're not doing anything you're just turning up because sickness is now seen as it's like a credit rating so, you, you know, it's, you know it's, it's a double bind. Yeah. Yes. Hi, um, my name is Jennifer Hinkle. I'm, I'm a qualified counsellor. I'm also a clinical supervisor. And in, in, the, in the context of sick and tired, of being sick and tired, um, I just wonder what your view is of clinical supervision for black professionals. I think, I think there's, I think clinical supervision in itself I think has lost its way anyway I think for everybody I think to a certain extent I think that um, there's been a lot of change in that, and, I'm, and I'm a qualified nurse that's my, my kind of background as probably there are other people in the room and I think clinical supervision is really important not just in terms of learning the skills 
but also in terms of learning to be that professional. That's what clinical supervision is about. Um, you know, that they, it's about making sure that people have the understanding of what they're doing, the knowledge to back up their actions, making sure that their hands can do the work, that they've got the skills, and making sure they have grown that that compassion, that vision, that professionalism, which is about comes from the inside. That's what the supervision should account for all those things. And making sure that in doing that, that person doesn't get lost themselves. That's really what it's about. And I, that's what, so when I say it's lost its way, I, I'm not getting on the bandwagon of people are less skilled or they don't, can't do the job. That, that is, you know, I don't really think that's the case. I think what we've lost is that building of the professionalism as a whole. And that building of the person, and this is where I suppose the, the issue for me about knowing who you are and what you bring to the party and how that affects you, which is the bit that comes from, you know, being for black professionals. They bring a different thing to the party. It's not better or worse, it's different. And other people bring different things to the party. And I think with clinical supervision now, we focus on perfecting the skills which are very important because obviously when something goes wrong, it's automatically, did they do the checks? Did they do this? Did they look at the patient? Did, you know, but actually, if you look at what most people complain about in, in hospital or healthcare, it's not usually about the skills. It's about how people talk to them or how they felt or whether somebody listened to them or whether they were confident. So it's not actually about the skills, but that is our default position wherever there are any issues. So, I mean, in terms of being... The bit that I'm sick and tired of in terms of that, I'm sick and tired of anything that goes wrong being blamed on the levels of skill of new practitioners. I'm sick and tired of them blaming, saying it wasn't like that in my day. Well, actually, it was. You know, I'm sick and tired of young student nurses having to carry the can or because they were trained in a university or whatever, something that takes us away from the fact that we're focusing down now on whether somebody can do this particular range of tasks in this sequence away from the professionalism and the development of the person, which is part of kind of what it is. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, next lady yeah. here. Yes, I'll come to, I'll come to you next. No, the next. No, the lady in the front hi, first. Hi, I'm involved in education mm -hmm. and can I just say thank you very much mm -hmm. for a very very cathartic, very stimulating uh, talk today and as, as you were speaking, I'm also a middle child so yes. it has to remind me that <laughs> yes. we're all um, middlies it's also interesting everything you said made such concrete sense for me because there's, there's a sense of responsibility towards others mm -hmm. to the detriment of ourselves and as you were speaking I was also thinking about the fact that we perhaps don't tell, tell our share our experiences with the next generation. I was reflecting as you were speaking, thinking about my mum, who's also passed, but she's still on my shoulder with me. Oh, you have one shoulder, mine's got one leg she's, on. She's, she's here. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say to you, grown-up conversation you were talking about. Big people talk. Big people big talk. People. And I wish that big people talk could be shared more with children. Mm. Because that would help us to overcome some of these obstacles that you were talking about. Because it's grown up conversation behind, you know, and, and the, the face or stuff, yeah. you don't hear how to deal with menopause. You don't hear how to talk about 
ills and pains because it's not custom. No. It's all hidden. It's all taken to church and pray about the pains and what have you. But no one says, when you're feeling like this, this is what you should do about it. Yeah. And I think it's that that's missing for me, and it's how we can overcome that yeah. for our next generation yeah. to say it's okay. Yeah. I think we it. are we are fortunately <coughs> or unfortunately we yeah. are in that transition point Absolutely. because actually we are the first generation where actually we will be coming into the menopause, not as a majority having lived our youth elsewhere. So we've come through the system. Um, we also are educating and growing our children in the system. So again, we're not tr doing that transition from one to another. This is the first generation in which it happens. It will become the norm, but we are the first. So actually, we are the pioneers who set the blueprint moving forward. You know, in our parents' day, big, when people, all your mother had to say was big people speaking. You disappeared. It was, it was like kryptonite. You were just like, you, your hand might be on the door. Big people's talking. You were, you were back. You were deflected back by, by an invisible force. We now have, I mean, and, and researcher, we talk to our children much more. This isn't just only just in black women. This is kind of in women of this generation. We talk more. And, but actually, what are we talking about? And that is the bit where we're saying about, you know, we need to expose a big people talk. I have kind of a view of um, why we are reluctant to speak. And I think because we, again, are the first generation to have this dilemma of the way we were brought up and the way it's supposed to be and the way we wish it to be. We walk that line. And sometimes for our own, it's a difficult place to be and I think sometimes for our own safety it's safer for us to retreat behind because I said so yes. <laughs> because we know that, because that's the way it is and actually there's a safety in that but sometimes we need to do that push because again we are, we are raising our children in, in, in the today scenario, so they have other things to face that we didn't have to face you know. and so we have to prepare them for that because that's our job now, I think that one of the things is that we also then, as well as not just speaking out, we also then have to train children to listen. And I do mean train, train yes. children to listen. Um, because they can hear what we're saying, but what we're saying doesn't get through sometimes. And so, but we have to train them to listen to what we're saying. Um, and we also have to train ourselves to listen back because we're not used to that. Basically, your parents talking, you just do what you were told. Okay, when this is a different dialogue. This is a two-way conversation we're in now. But that is the overlap of the two circles, and because this circle is going to leave from us and go on without us, and we need to be, be able to help across that gap. And I think the same thing happens whether you're looking at professionally, whether you're also looking with your children and your families. Again, we are in that transition point. But if we don't, if our culture is about leading by example, we were brought up by following example. How can we say to our children or our younger brothers or sisters or cousins, look after yourself when they're seeing us, I'll be better tomorrow. How does that work? You know, we didn't have that because we saw our, our mothers going, I'll be better tomorrow. We were taught to be better tomorrow. We're trying to go from be better tomorrow to teaching them, you know, but you're not all right today. Okay. And that is the difficulty that we have, I think. Thank you for that. Lady. Uh, I was just thinking about the 
in what you say there are obviously there are quite clearly issues around patient safety per se full stop I mean we could just do that and it links to the point I was making before about when something goes wrong when we have a mid-staff so we have something major people look it's it's easier to look at the tasks and the the systems and processes were they completed so what we do is we refer to whether the systems and processes were completed according to the protocol we don't necessarily look to see whether the protocol was right in the first place and who's it. But equally, as well, you know, this is a whole journey thing. And, and on the same point is, if you look at, and, and you will know yourself from what you're working, and I know from working in Evolve is, the number of people like me who engage with that debate is minimal. So we have the issue of patient safety being looked at through a very narrow window, we also have the issue that the voices that are taken into account are not necessarily the minority voices, all those people who, are, who feel the greatest impact of those things. And then we also have less of those people actually raise their voice. So it's not, the answer's not in one scenario. And it comes back to what I was saying, tomorrow will be better. We don't need to say, I'm all right. And that's not all to do with the way the system is. It's a large part of that is to do with the system. And there is a smaller part of that's actually to do with us putting our hand up and going, you know what, this is not okay. We wait for someone to speak on our behalf. You, you may have noticed in one of these slides that I had up there, the one with the, the older black woman and the quotes around menopause, called speaking for ourselves. There's one issue about whether we are invited to speak, but the, the other issue is, do people speak when they're invited? I was once um, going to do a presentation at um, the NHH leadership conference years ago, and my, present my, my 
first slide was up there and they were introducing me and I just nipped out. So I was coming, you know, you try and sneak in around the side of the back so they don't see that you're late, you know, because I'm on black people's time. Anyway, so I was coming around the corner and as I walked past this anything, there was a guy at the end of the thing and he went, God, look at all the qualifications that woman's got. When does she go home? And I, and I just walked past him and I went, I don't. And the man jumped out of his skin and I just sat there and I think to myself, that, that is important in order that I can do those things. And, and I feel, for me, it's important to make the most of those opportunities to be in places like that, to say that. But I also think that we can't... One of the things that we're good at is, is also for ourselves as individuals deflecting our responsibility for ourselves on the fact that we're waiting for the world to change. And there are aspects of the world that need to change in order to challenge some, you know, some of the really important things that you're highlighting. But I think it's no less important to do that, making sure you have your day off. Because you can't fight that battle 365 days a year. And, you know, again, it's about that living what you're preaching. So if safety... Your own personal safety is, is the greatest paramount. Those things are very important. It's really important to make sure we are in the platforms and we strive to be those places to be heard. It's important when we know something's been hidden to highlight that that needs to be taken out. But you can't do that and then go back to your house and not sleep. It, it, they are, to me, they are two sides of the same coin. It's not, you know, I, I, I admire and I welcome and I'm grateful for the sacrifices people make to fight the big battles on my behalf. But equally, if they are fighting those battles to be another line of someone who finishes life early, who's sick before their time, who we, you know, who we wheel in in a chair because they've worn themselves out to that point, then I'm less, I'm not, it's not that I'm not grateful for the efforts, but I'm less, there's more of me that kind of says, but, you know, if you don't value yourself as an individual first, you are the only defense that you have got. Then what is it that you expect from me? Do you want me to follow you to that bottle to over the end of the cliff? Is that what will demonstrate my commitment? There has to be a balance between the personal and the political, I think. Lady over here. Yes. Hello, I'm Janice Einstein. I'm Biodiversity Observatory Manager here at the Women Faculty of Science. The discussion slightly into another area, but looking at your concept of well-being in the much broader context in terms of the environment and where that fits in, and just wondering how you consider access to or lack of access to nature, the environment, how that fits in with your research in terms of general well-being of any women. I think environment is really is is really important, and actually the the wellness and well-being for me is as you probably get the message it's the work hard play hard rest well is probably the thing that I think is missing in that work hard play hard bit what I think in terms of the natural environment is that the environment in which you the important thing is having that rest well and having that leisure and having that respite the time when you get off the bus where you get off the bus too is up to you some people are energised by open spaces, by countryside, by, you know, babbling brooks, etc. Some people are freaked out by that kind of thing, you know. Some people are energised by being in the city centre, the hustle and bustle of life and people and whatever. And I think that the important thing is to have acts to recognise what energises you and have access to that environment. So I'm not an anti-green person or a pro thing. I'm actually in that rest well and, and having the 
the diversity of spaces for people. I think that in terms of town planning, for example, is that I like to live, I, I was born and bred in the city, I like to live my life in a city. But I also like not to have to go too far to a park or whatever, because I run. Sad but true. Anyway, <laughs> but, so I like to be near parks and that. I like to live in spaces where there are a variety of family groups. Some people like living in places where they're all people are very much like them. I like to live in a place where it's very diverse, not just in terms of ethnicity, but also in terms of family groups. So there's some young mums with buggies and there's some older people and whatever. It's just, that's ideal for me. But when I want complete downtime as opposed to a little rest... I like to take a plane, go to Antigua, take the island hopper, my life in my hands, and land down in Canefield. Oh, well, not Canefield now. Where are they going to reopen it? You know, I, that's what I like to do, and go to Dominica. That's for me. But that doesn't, that's not for everybody. So environment-wise, I think I'm, I'm in for diversity of environment. And I think that's where that kind of health comes from. So I think we need to make sure that there are a range of spaces for people to do that. You wanted to come yeah, um, what, what I'd like to say that I'm sick and tired of is, is what I see as a, a big gaping hole in clinical supervision um, across the board, probably, of, of the health profession. In terms of that, there's plenty of managerial supervision, the hospital manager wants a lot about this, but then dealing with the, the, the clinical side, not just in terms of personal or professional development, but the actual well being of the in individual emotionally is lacking. Yeah. You know, even in my own training, I've trained in, in a, in a doctor's surgery which was linked to nursing, which deals with psychiatric patients. Mm -hmm. I found myself in a situation asking the doctors, um, excuse me, how come I've not got clinical supervision here? Mm -hmm. You know, and having to literally source that myself mm -hmm. and pay for it, you know? And I, I was just wondering what your views are um, I think, that in terms of well-being? I think if you look at different... I mean, the, the ongoing clinical supervision, post-registration... I mean, pre-registration is compulsory because that yeah. actually comes with your training. That's what's required to do. Post-registration is, is part of your continuing professional development. And in different professions, it's different. It's not the same in all, whether you're looking at nursing, etc. Um, I think... The clinical supervision that you're talking about is, is a mixture between what I would call supervision and the mentorship and the personal development, the continuing personal and professional development that's required. In private, um, in, in non-NHS, like non-hospital settings, particularly GPs, etc., that's very much down to them buying in that service, and that's part of the system in which we work. I think it's important in all spheres. How, and how it's financed and sourced is kind of something that's beyond the individual's control. I think it's important for each person to find for themselves a source of getting that, formally or informally, to help them kind of maintain their professional development. I mean, I have a lot of... Um, I have quite a few mentees from different professional groups who, because of the lack of formal clinical supervision post-registration or post-qualification or when they go into academia or when they diverge out from normal, there isn't a formal set. So we use that on like a mentorship kind of coaching mixture to do that. Um, so I think that's really important. I think it's difficult, it's more difficult for people where they have to financially source that themselves, mm -hmm. but I think for me, it's always been a priority. So I've always, you know, when I didn't, weren't, hadn't, I'm available, I've always kind of 
paid and got it myself. But I think that is, I think the importance of it you can't challenge. I think it's really how we make sure that there's that resource available for people on, from different platforms. I think that's the most important. That's really what's important. Thank you for that, Jenny. Okay. Then we'll come to you. Okay. Um, I really wanted to follow on from the question about the environment. And one of the things I want to say, it, it's great. It would be nice for us all to be able to jump on a plane and go... You can't, we haven't got any space. We haven't got space for everybody else. <laughs> <laughs> We're really small. <laughs> but I think also... Um, yeah, I'm not, far, I'm not far from Maho. <laughs> but also, for many of us, many of us were born here, and we really need to claim this space. Yes. It is our space. Yeah. But, you know, a lot of the research has shown, you know, that for black people, a lot of black and minority ethnic communities do not go into rural areas. One yeah. of my friends knows that I go. Yeah. <laughs> she said to me the other day, you certainly claim the countryside. <laughs> and I think yeah. it's really important that we start to claim the countryside as yeah. our own and that we encourage our children and, you know, mm. and their peers to claim the countryside as our own and to claim spaces as our own as black women. Because, as you were saying, sometimes we don't speak up. Sometimes, you know, we go to meetings, and so many have been there, where it's a bit of the reverse for Linda, and <laughs> that we are the only black person in the room, and it's really difficult to say anything. Um, but it is about claiming the space and recognising that our views are just mm. as important as everybody else. Yes. Mm -hmm. Lady here on the left, and I'll come to you after. Yeah. Um, I just want to say um, thank you very much for your presentation. Um, I sort of feel as I'm, I suppose, sort of the next generation. This is this is my mum here, mm -hmm. um, and. Um, I sort of feel that I could identify with a lot of what you were saying in terms of being at that point of being sick and tired of being sick and tired, and yet still only being in my early 30s um, and having to make those decisions about, I suppose, how I treat myself and how I deal with my own health. Mm -hmm. Myself and my mum, we've been talking about that on our way up here, and, and getting that balance. How do you get the balance when... Um, you know, you have children, you have a family, you've got to manage your finances. And um, I was saying when you made the point about um, people taking their holidays and going home, sort of whispered to my mum, but that's fine, but then you also have to meet the targets. I mean, my manager does the same thing. She yeah. comes around at five o'clock when she's also leaving and says to everybody, you know, it's time to go home now, everybody go home. But everybody's there because they're trying to meet their outputs mm. and meet their targets. And I think some of the exploration is about how you get that balance, as you said, perhaps going to the countryside or, mm. you know, but if you don't have the money, you don't, you have mm. children, your resources are very limited, perhaps you don't even have extended family, some people, to give, you know, if you're a mother or a parent, to give you a break. It's exploring sometimes and talking about how do you get that balance, how do you take better care of yourself. Yes, I think, I think, it's, I think that's really important and it links into some of the things I was saying, that's the thing I was saying about, you know, making sure that you, you, have, you take what time there is for yourself. I think that, I mean, I, you know, raise I three children and work in uh, full time and on all the rest of it and elderly parents and all the things that go along with being in the middle, but really the <laughs> oldest. Um, and I think what is important is it's if you look critically at your time, there is always some window. And it's what you, I think there's a thin line between what we feel we have to do in our time, and in reality, what we actually have to do. 
Now, you, you can say that that's a bit blurred because you might feel that I really do have to do this for me to feel better. But a good measure I use is, what will happen if I don't do this? What will actually happen if I really don't do this one thing? Or if I give myself a little less time to do this, but a little more time just to do nothing? You know, what will happen if I actually choose at the end of the week, let's say, to have a bath instead of a shower? Now, you might think, well, what difference does that make? A shower's quicker, it gives me more time. No, a shower gives you more time to do other work. Yeah, it's very difficult to have a bath and remain very, very stressed in the bath. You know, it's very difficult to do it. I've tried. <laughs> you know, I'll just have a quick bath. You, there's no such thing. But what happens in that is that that is a time of relaxation. And when the body relaxes, it's very hard for the mind to remain tense. And I have this phrase where I say, I'm just giving my brain a rest. Like every other part of me. I'm still clean. Now, a bath might take 10 minutes to do if you have a quick one. Yeah. A shower might take three minutes. But in reality, what's the major issue that's going to change in your life with those seven minutes? Apart from the fact that you can have a shower and then while you're wrapped in the towel and your hair's wrapped up with something else, you can run downstairs, put the kettle on, quickly wash up, do whatever it is, quickly run around with a duster and do everything else in those seven minutes. I'm looking at number, but do you see what I mean? It is that time, and it is, and I understand the thing about the the deadline, and I understand the thing about hitting the target because that is the norm, and that's what that's the norm for people now. Okay, but if you're if you're there, if you leave at five o'clock, and your boss is doing a very good thing, telling you to go, whether or not you go, it's your free will. But she is not showing you the example of, I mean, I hate it when you have the boss that's there till nine o'clock because then you don't want to go because you think she's thinking I'm leaving her. No wonder I ain't in the target because I've left, right? But if you leave at five o'clock or if you leave at half past five, come Monday morning, will people go, oh, she left at half past five? No, they won't. So I think it's, it's the difference between what you feel you have to do and what you actually have to do. And that makes a big difference. I mean, when I come out of the bath, my kids can ask me anything. Because I'm like, oh, relax. And then you come out of the bath, you find that you can't run around and dust. You know what, the dusting can wait till tomorrow. And for that one day, it's only one day. You don't do it every day. It's not something every, you're not, not doing any work because you're always in the bath. You know, this is 10 minutes, you know, of what you're doing. Yes. Just a quick question. I'm Social Care Faculty. And again, brilliant presentation but actually really helpful discussion here my my question is you have discussed the role of mental health in, in black women I just wondered how much work you've explored or if it's an area of interest for you the role of women with physical or sensory disabilities um, that's my I've done some work and with um, the uh, We've done some work around with guide dogs for blind women who, who are visual impairment. Um, and it was quite interesting, this issue of fat and fat, with women who actually have little or no visual... You know, they, they, they don't do that thing that I'm not saying... I'm not going to say you lot do it, because maybe I can just say I do it, right? Where, you know, where you, you know you look good, right? And you're walking past and you just have a quick little look. Yes, I'm, I'm still looking good as I'm walking along, right? 
when you're out, when you're dressed up or when you're ready to go. Or on the day when you're really feeling bad and you're thinking, oh. Women who don't do women do that checkpoint constantly, and you don't just do it in mirrors. You might do it in a shop window. You might do it in the reflection of a car, and then if it looks bad, you think it's that car. Anyway, it's, you know, but you do that constantly. You check out. You constantly measure and check that you're okay and that you think. And talking to um, these, these women, and they don't have that internal measure. They don't have that response from other people. And it was quite interesting to see how they find their sense of health and sense in that and it's the same with women living with chronic conditions because actually you're living with ill health in, in not in terms of sensory deprivation or sensory impairment but certainly in terms of some chronic illnesses and what you find is i found that they have different ways of checking out so for them it's it's very much more a an inner feeling of you're conscious of the way they move they're conscious of the way their body feels in their clothes they're conscious of um you know whether when they're out they're feeling <clears throat> brightness and light or whether they're feeling in and I think it's something that we do when we don't which I'm conscious of doing at different points so when I'm feeling better about myself if I'm exercising running everything's feels good if I'm not feeling good I can feel every little bit that's moving every muscle every bit that's aching I can feel every pain and it, it's a different reference point I think at that I think <coughs> what's interesting was um a project I did with women uh, around postnatal depression, this was a South Asian women around postnatal depression, around um, the acceptance of that because of, you know, the, the cultural high point of birth in terms of having, you know, um, given birth to the next generation and kept the family line and kept the family honour through the birth. But then living with that with postnatal depression at the same time, which is very debilitating both physically and mentally. <clears throat> And how for some of them, in terms of the family health, that it was easier for them to accept that, to say, to seek out some physical diagnosis that wasn't postnatal depression, because the impact of the label of postnatal depression had on their own perception of their health and that of their family. Um, so that's interesting. There's another project that running at the moment around um, with the Association for Real Change, which is actually around undiagnosed learning disabilities in newly arrived Polish migrants, where children, um, you know, have come with their family into the UK and obviously and they don't have a, a system of diagnosing learning disabilities in where they've come from. So they may be 13, 14, and it's at that once once they've, you know. Has this, they've received no support in that arena. And for some of the families, again, how there is, you know, there's nothing wrong with them in terms of learning disabilities. They're just a bit different. And I see a similar thing when I go to the Caribbean sometimes, where someone with what we would, we would have whipped them off and diagnosed them with learning disabilities and put them in special education and everything else, they just live in the family. The family accommodate around them. And so, and it's, and it's different. So I think that when you look at things like long-term chronic illnesses, when you look at things where they've got physical impairment, where you look at things like learning disabilities, that certainly in terms of health, you know, the women there use different mechanisms, but there's still a degree to which I think the women, particularly those visually impaired, try and accommodate their impairment so it's less of a burden to the other people around them. And so I think in some ways the same stories get played out just slightly differently. So they don't want accommodation for their, um, their um, lack of uh, vision. Um, and that's not about being seen as a, an equality thing 
although often the women will say, oh, I just want to be seen the same as everybody else. But the way they play it out is very similar to women who don't have that visual impairment in that in doing that as responsible mothers and, and members of the family, they are busy accommodating, minimising their own need in order to kind of fulfil what's required by other people. Well, thank you very much, Professor Laura. That was really inspiring, very interesting, and quite insightful. We've run out of time. If anybody wants one of the Mary Seacole books, they are at the back for the statue appeal or the cards. You can, you take one, you can give me the money for the appeal. And if, if anyone wants one at another time, they can let me know. Okay, I'd just like to thank you all for coming. And um, please make sure that we've got all, you're all on our email sort of um, list. Do people want the... Oh, and they're on there. Yes. If anybody wants a copy of the slides, a copy's here. And Jenny does have them electronically, so if you'd rather them email to you, she's got them as well. So, okay. Um, we're going to try and maintain this network. Because each time we have a meeting, it's really, really valuable to everybody who attends. But we perhaps need some more help <laughs> with agreeing to organise it. So perhaps when we um, sort of email next, we might ask for volunteers to help support the network by putting on an event somewhere else yeah. or whatever. If anybody wants my contact details, I've got some cards here. You could, the details are all on the back. Lovely. Thank you. So thank, thank you. Everyone. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.